the child with um, adequate or optimal DHA is able to literally break down that question. So decipher the question, understand, compute the answer and is ready to deliver it versus a child with suboptimal DHA, which is still trying to figure out exactly what the question is. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. friends, I'm so excited with today's podcast guest because I think as parents, many of us inherently know that what our children eat affects their mood and also their performance at school. And that's why I'm so thrilled to introduce you to Dr. Rachel Gal, who is a nutritional neuroscientist, neuropsychologist and neurodevelopmental specialist with expertise in a range of mental health conditions and associative learning and behavior differences. She's also a registered nutritionist and she's done a huge amount of research into the way nutrition affects the brain and in particular conditions such as ADHD and autism. And so as a parent of a child on the autism uh, spectrum, I'm always looking into research on how to improve his cognition, his speed of thinking, and also his anxiety levels through nutrition and other modalities. And that's why this episode is so, so interesting to me. And I think will be also for many of you listening, because even if you have children or a child who is neurotypical, you're still going to benefit from this episode because we talk about really interesting research on things like the way omega-3s, for example, can actually affect a child's speed of processing and the their ability really to grasp a question ahead of maybe some other children in in the classroom who are actually possibly omega-3 depleted or don't have enough. So it's a really, really interesting episode and I think you're going to very much enjoy it. Dr. Gao is also the author of um, the book Nutritious Minds and she has a non- for profit organization called the Nutritious Minds Trust. And the aim of the trust is to advocate for all types of learning and behavior differences and empower young people to reach their highest potential through psychological, educational, nutritional support and community projects focused on the creative arts and music. And Nutritious Minds actually organizes various community events and workshops on nutrition, fitness and mental health. And as you'll hear in this episode, Dr. Rachel's own son struggled with ADHD, which prompted her to completely retrain and leave her original um, profession in real estate and requalify and dive into this really, really interesting and such important area. Dr. Gao also has an absolutely fantastic book that you'll want to read called Smart Foods for ADHD and Brain Health. It's available on Amazon. Um, I highly recommend it and I'll link to that in the show notes over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast and also everything else that we talk about in today's episode. She also is the founder of Nutritious Minds Trust, which is a trust whose aim is to advocate for all types of learning and behavioral differences and empower young people to reach their highest potential through psychological, educational, nutritional support and community projects focused on the creative arts and music and Nutritious Minds organizes community events and workshops on nutrition, fitness and mental health and provides a motivational platform for individuals to about their collective experiences she's absolutely incredible in everything she's doing and so i can't wait to introduce you now to dr rachel gal so i'm really excited to be joined by dr rachel gal today um i've read your book it's hugely hugely interesting and helpful to me um rachel and i've just been so excited to have you on the show so firstly a very warm welcome to the show thank you so much it's an honor and pleasure to be here today um so thank you yeah for coming on should we start with because i know you weren't always in this area of health and actually started your career in property until you discovered your son had adhd and i just think that's a really good place to start because it helps listeners understand your background and how you kind of researched everything and really got into this so should we start there 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll try and give you the short version. <laughs> uh, basically, when my son was around nine years of age, um, he was getting into trouble quite a bit at school. It was all very sort of low level disruptive behaviour. But I was sort of summoned to, to meetings with teachers and you know lots of complaints about being very fidgety, doodling while the teacher was talking, um, blurting out answers, uh, getting up out of his seat on occasion when he wasn't meant to, and genuinely a lot of kind of uh, restless, impulsive, hyperactive, uh, inattentive behaviour. So that was the start. And then that uh, obviously ignited efforts on my behalf to try and seek out help from a variety of professionals, from educational psychologists who came to the school to observe him in class and in the playground. Um, also uh, clinical psychologists, child and adolescent psychiatrists. And ultimately, we ended up with a dual diagnosis of um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, commonly known as ADHD, and uh, dyslexia, mild dyslexia. Um, and working in property, especially in northwest London on the very famous and busy Abbey Road, um, my hours were long. And fortunately, he was at a school literally just around the corner, so that made things easier. But um, it soon became apparent that life was becoming unmanageable. You know, I was a busy working first time mom and the demands of the job, plus trying to cope with what was going on with my son at the time, um, forced me to kind of reevaluate our position as a family. And eventually I decided to give up my career in property as much as I loved it. And uh, we took some time out. And then I decided to enroll as a mature student to embark upon an undergraduate psychology degree. Um, and I did that initially part-time while my son was settled back in a new school. Um, and then the Bachelor of Science led to a Master of Science, led to a PhD in the Department of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the Institute of Psychiatry, King's College London. And um, after that decade of studying, um, specialising um, specifically in attention deficit hyperactivity disorder and comorbid conditions, um, with a focus on the kind of nutritional neuroscience side of things, um, I then was invited to do a postdoc, postdoctoral research fellow role um, over in Bethesda. Maryland um, at a place called the National Institutes of Health, which is one of the world's largest biomedical research agencies that <clears throat> engage in what's called high-risk novel cutting-edge research. And I spent four years in the section of nutritional neurosciences there, this time working with adults of ADHD, uh, conducting neuroimaging research and looking at omega-3 in the brain function of adults with ADHD. And that was a really nice transition because at King's College London, I'd worked with um, children and adolescents with and without ADHD. Interesting. And just so that kind of people listening can get an idea, obviously, if they've had a diagnosis with their children or one of their children or themselves with ADHD, they'll be very understanding of what the symptoms are. But how is this showing up for you? You mentioned the problems in the classroom there. Was it also showing up at home? Was he challenging or were there behavioural difficulties? Because I think often parents in this position do find their behaviour difficult to control don't they and it can feel quite isolating socially because you feel like it's your child that's causing that disruption and it can be quite challenging yeah it was really challenging and um certainly you know his behavior at home was similar to that at school um you know for example he was very disorganized even if I had his lunchbox here ready and his pee bag here ready and his, you know, everything was packed. And because I was a bit of a helicopter mum, and unfortunately we sort of fall into that role when we're trying to overcompensate because we're recognizing that our children are struggling, you know, say for example, with organization. So everything was done for him, which wasn't looking back retrospectively, it wasn't the best way to handle it. But, um, you know, sometimes when you're, 
you know, time, you had time constraints, like getting up super early in the morning, trying to make a nice breakfast and, mm. you know, rushing out the door with, uh, with your child, you know, you have to be super organized. And I, I did a lot of that organization, but yeah, so certainly, you know, his room was often a complete mess. Um, and it was always a great struggle to sort of, you know, tell him that he needed to go and tidy his room. And he said he would. And then five minutes later I'd come in and he'd be doing something altogether different and I'd have to redirect him to the task you know and and that was very repetitive and it was very obvious that he wasn't doing this deliberately as teachers would often say they'd often be like you know he's deliberately not listening he's Mm. he's you know deliberately not following through on the instructions but I noticed even without my professional training you know those very early days that if he did something that he you know shouldn't have done he'd be incredibly remorseful and be like you know I'm so sorry mummy and you know I won't do it again and then I knew that ultimately he would you know 10 minutes later he'd be jumping on the sofa again and that was a real struggle and it was it was very difficult for me to kind of watch that struggle going on um but uh you know, fortunately, even before the diagnosis, I knew that there were some developmental differences and, you know, it would be absolutely ludicrous to try and ignore them and, you know, pretend that everything was OK. Um, so I had to seek out a lot of the help privately because back then I just felt there really wasn't enough help available, you know, because he'd been labelled as like a naughty boy at school, even though he was incredibly bright. Um, you know, when the Ed Psych assessed his um, IQ, he was outperforming something like 95% of his peers. So he was very, very bright. And that made it even more difficult and more frustrating for teachers, especially because they were like, he can do the work, see what he's produced. And, mm. you know, it was like they couldn't understand why it was such a struggle for him to produce the work. So, yeah, the behaviours were both at home and at school. And in fact, they have to be in order to get the diagnosis. You know, it has to, the symptoms have to be present across two situational contexts. Hmm. Interesting. And in, in the work that you've done and the research, you talk a lot about the benefits of omega-3 and the way that that helps the brain in terms of um, processing and the protective myelin sheath and things. And it's, it's really interesting for me because we were talking before the show, I have a son who's on the autism spectrum. And so it's a, a different set of problems, but some of them do overlap. And he similarly is, um, is bright, but his sensory speed is impacted significantly. Um, so his processing speed is impacted where it's significantly slower, but his sensory perception is very, very distracting because he has so many inputs. And we found interestingly that as he's got older, he's 14 now, he has got more into nutrition himself and he is craving the exact foods that you speak of. And so he wants to eat a lot of oily fish, which really interests me rather than taking it as a supplement, um, which obviously and we can talk in a minute about the complementary benefits of the other vitamins and minerals that are present, which you detail in in your book, which is brilliant. Um, Thank you. Yeah, really, really well done. And but what what's interesting is I we were at the point where, like you, we were going to be prescribed medication. And I'm some super interested in this link between serotonin and dopamine as well, because it definitely has an impact on his mood. What we've noticed is that the more we have nailed his nutrition in terms of those things and certain nutrients like magnesium, the calmer he gets and the improvements we see in processing speed. And so I'd like to kind of start with that, the work that you've done on omega-3 DHA and EPA and how that works. If you could explain in a bit more detail, please. Yeah, of course. Um, So oftentimes nutrition is addressed from the neck down, you know, in terms of its uh, bodily effects and in in terms of, you know, the prevention of physical or um, premature diseases such as cardiovascular disease, type 2 diabetes, obesity. And the fundamental role of nutrition in the brain is overlooked. So the fundamental role of nutrition is often overlooked. But of course, what you eat uh, ultimately affects your brain's function and structure at both molecular and cellular levels. And my research has taught me that there are specific brain selective nutrients um, which underpin its function. Um, The first thing I guess we should start with is just by communicating and sharing 
that the brain is the, the fattest organ in the, in the human body. So 65% of the dry weight of the adult brain and retina is made up of these complex, specialized and unique fats called lipids. And around 25% of all neuronal membranes are made up of the omega-3 fatty acid called docosahexaenoic acid, which is critical um, right from the earliest stages of neurogenesis, that is when the brain is developing in the womb. So if you like, it is the building block of the baby's brain and retina. And there is this preferential uptake of omega-3 DHA. And of course, the richest store is the brain. So the mother is depleted of her DHA, which preferentially crosses the placenta, especially during the last trimester of pregnancy, as I said, to form, um, you know, to serve as the building block of the baby's brain um, and visual system. And of course, that leaves the mother vulnerable to um, postnatal depression. And I'll come to that later as to why that is the case. So as we said, brain is the fattest organ in the body. It's estimated we have in the region of 100 billion neurons. And each of these neurons um, are coated in a myelin sheath. And that myelin sheath is made up of DHA. So what it does is it acts as a, like a type of insulator to speed up neuronal responses across our brain's networks, making for faster and more efficient cell signaling. So neurotransmission, just to break it down, uh, governs our everyday thoughts, behavior, feelings, and actions. So neurotransmission is like what we're doing now. We're not even thinking about it, but our brain is like rapidly sending all these chemical messages while, you know, we're blinking our eyes and it's a, a conscious a process we're not even conscious of. Um, so cell signaling is critical in terms of um, a child in the classroom. So I like to give this translational example. Say a child has adequate omega-3 and there is a scale um, that adequate omega-3 can be measured on via a finger prick test, which we'll talk about later. Um, so if a, if a child has adequate um, DHA and a teacher is asking, you know, the 30 children in the classroom a question, the child with um, adequate or optimal DHA is able to literally break down that question. So decipher the question, understand, compute the answer and is ready to deliver it versus a child with suboptimal DHA, which is still trying to figure out exactly what the question is. So that's a kind of translational example. And the work of Professor John Stein at the University of Oxford has estimated that children with suboptimal DHA, um, their neurotransmitter process is slowed down by up to 30%. Um, so it's quite significant. Mm. So we need DHA uh, and EPA, which is the other highly unsaturated fatty acid for uh, brain function. And not only in cell signaling, um, but also in the regulation of um, specific uh, neurotransmitter systems such as serotonin and dopamine, which are often confused. So serotonin, just to break down quite simply, is the hormone or neurotransmitter that governs feelings of well-being and happiness, whereas dopamine is critical for motivation, uh, feelings of pleasure and reward. And there's this whole body of evidence around uh, the dopamine depletion hypothesis in neurodevelopmental conditions, especially ADHD. So when we're lacking in dopamine, for example, we will struggle with motivation, uh, especially. Um, children with ADHD also, there's a whole body of clinical literature demonstrating that they don't respond to rewards in the same way that neurotypicals do. So incentives are really critical. Um, for example, if you ask a child with ADHD to tidy its room and say to them, if you tidy your room every day at the end of the week, I'll give you five pounds pocket money. 
well, that's not going to be very meaningful to that child because kids of ADHD want the smaller immediate reward. So if you said to a child, if you tidy your room now and I'll give you one pound as soon as you've done it, that's going to be more motivating. So that's one phenomenon. There are reward deficits in ADHD and not just in children, also, also in, in adults. And again, in terms of serotonin and dopamine, uh, omega-3s help regulate both these neurotransmitter symptoms. So omega-3s are critical. That's the mechanistic action. So adequate omega-3 results in, um, you know, both these systems functioning as they should, where we know that a lot of experimental laboratory studies have shown deprivation of omega-3 can result in a 40% depletion in the frontal cortex of the brain and the nucleus accumbens. The frontal cortex of the brain governs um, a lot of our everyday behaviors. So forward thinking, planning, problem solving, emotional regulation, and the nucleus accumbens is part of the reward center of the brain. So we know that omega-3, low omega-3 can result in uh, lower levels of, of dopamine. Um, so yeah. And so when, when you talk about the lower levels of dopamine, I don't know whether um you or Professor Stein's done any research in relation to this, there's a gene, isn't there, called the COMP gene, which governs to a degree the way that you clear dopamine in the in the brain. And when I'm looking at individuals' genetic reports, it's interesting because often the ones that have better clearance, um, so the dopamine is hanging around less, actually don't have the same perception of pressure and urgency and need to kind of self-impose that. And I know I fall within that category to work, get work done, whereas other people will feel overwhelmed. And I think the studies that have been done with the military show that depending on that variation, you may be more vulnerable to things like PTSD. Um, in that scenario then, for people that, would you say that somebody with ADHD is processing dopamine very quickly? So they then need, that's why they need that immediate gratification and reward because they, they need to feel something instantaneously because it's gone quite quickly. Is, is that the reason why? Um, it's a, a highly complex picture. Um, some of the best work has come out of NIDA. Um, the National Institute of uh, Drug Abuse at the NIH by a lady called Nora Volkow. She's one of the leaders in addiction. And she has found um, that adults with ADHD, independently, those also with high hyperactivity, and again, independently with those with drug addictions, have um, lower volume of what's called D2 dopaminergic neurotransmitters um, in the ventral striatal area, which again is the reward hub of the brain. So there is this kind of lower dopamine going on in the ADHD brain. And then that, of course, gives rise to the behavioral profile we see in terms of motivational deficits, um, different differential responses to reward you know, also, you know, of course, all the attention deficits, the high impulsivity. Um, so there are many theories. And of course, a common finding also, which I feel is relevant to this discussion, is that humans are wired to kind of seek pleasure and avoid pain. We know that. Individuals of ADHD uh, I have found through my own research, and also this is sort of backed up by, you know, published research on PubMed, is that um, individuals of ADHD are, if you like, master manipulators of their brain's biochemistry. So they will seek out ways to release dopamine, to normalize their brain's biochemistry. And oftentimes in childhood, that is the gravitation towards sugar and ultra processed foods which give that dopamine hit you know so you have i don't know a donut or or you know chocolate bar whatever you get that little dopamine hit the child feels good momentarily because of course it's transient because it's artificially induced and hence that 
you know, enables them or wires them to keep going back for more. And that's when you start to see problematic eating, binge eating, you know, hiding sugary snacks in the bedroom or rummaging through the cupboards in order to get them. So that's one thing. In adults of ADHD, what we see is this tendency to self-medicate um, through substances like alcohol, nicotine, um, you know, uh, marijuana, cocaine, and oftentimes this can develop into a substance use disorder. Um, so there's a, a quite a high percentage of undiagnosed adults of ADHD who have fallen into that trap of self-medicating. And of course, the theory is it's kind of like my theory, and and there are others who subscribe to this belief is again the kind of trying to normalize dopamine. Um, trying to, you know, kind of self-medicate in the sense that that dopamine is just not working for them normally, so that they're having to add substances that will release mm. it. As you're learning in this episode, one of the greatest things you can do for your health, in particular brain health, is actually to make sure you have good levels of the essential um, fatty acid omega-3. It's so, so important. And you want to be able to be getting this primarily from food sources as much as you can. But in some cases, particularly with children, when they maybe won't eat much oily fish, then it's important to take a supplement. And I absolutely love and use myself and with my family the omega Omega-3 by Bear Biology. Their products are super pure. They are also very um, high strength in terms of their levels of EPA and DHA, which help with lowering inflammation and also enhancing eye and brain health. And you can find those and a list of all the other supplements that I take myself over on my Amazon page, which is bit.ly forward slash Angela recommends. That's bit.ly forward slash Angela recommends. It's really, really interesting what you say, because obviously this wasn't known so much about, was it, when we were growing up and we were children. And I very much identify with what you're saying about your son, because I was that child that was constantly getting up, walking, highly intelligent, but getting up, walking around the classroom, messing around, couldn't concentrate and was constantly looking for some form of interaction, couldn't watch television as a child, can't concentrate. And it's interesting because I would say that magnesium and omega-3 alongside b vitamins are three supplements that if i'm not taking them the way my brain operates i can see a noticeable difference and and not getting my diet um is really really interesting and that that interplay i'm curious to explore both in terms of the child and the mother what you're talking about there in terms of serotonin have if, if we sit first with the the individual who has the adhd or that child how is the omega-3 facilitating better levels of serotonin in the brain and improve mood? Um, <clears throat> so it's the same story that I mentioned earlier. So omega-3, the main mechanistic action is in the regulation of both these neurotransmitter um, systems. Um, so, sorry, I don't, I don't really understand. Your so, so I guess <clears throat> when we're looking at that, if it sort of improves, you were saying in the third trimester of pregnancy, oh, the baby depletes, yeah, takes quite a lot from the mother. I guess my question would be, not oh, yeah, everybody sorry. has ADHD, right? Not everybody, some children don't. Is, is a mother who has a child that is, is along those tendencies that she's in the third trimester with, would she is she more likely to have more of those omega-3s um, depleted from her body than, say, a neurotypical child would, would do? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, it, it's going to happen to anyone. You know, mm. the baby, developing baby needs omega-3. The richest store is the mother's brain. Um, there is that biomagnification process which depletes the mother of her omega-3s and if she's not taking them um, or eating foods that contain omega-3s there is an increased risk for her to develop um, postpartum depression um, a lot of that research is by someone called Dr Hiblin um, who's shown um, a significant association between um Oh my god! I have to remember this. This research is quite. <laughs> I haven't thought about this for a while. Um, what did he show? Yeah, so he showed that um, those mothers with low omega 
omega-3, we're more likely to have higher levels of postpartum depression. Um, so it's really the maternal diet and the quality of the maternal diet is obviously critical, not only for the mother's well-being, but also for the development of the baby's brain. So during that last trimester as well, um, I don't know if you can recall um, what is described as, as baby brain. Mm. Yeah. So it's when the, the mother becomes quite tearful and overly emotional and um, maybe a little bit forgetful and, and mm. disorganized. And that is hypothesized to be due to the rapid depletion of omega-3 from her brain mm. during that last trimester. And we also know that babies born prematurely have an increased risk of conditions such as global developmental delay, dyslexia, ADHD, premature retinopathy. And again, this is uh, hypothesized by um, many researchers working in the field of uh, fatty acids and lipids to be uh, due to that rapid depletion of omega-3 in the last trimester. And babies who are born prematurely obviously miss out on that biomagnification mm. process. Isn't that interesting? And I do recall what you were saying there about the the depletion, because I was still, when I had my first child practicing, uh, actually my first year practicing as a lawyer, in that final, I was still a lawyer then, in that final trimester, I had to write everything down, right? There was no chance of me remembering what went yeah. on in a meeting. And actually, interestingly, I suffered terribly with postpartum depression and it got, I mean, I had three children in four and a half years, which I don't think helps. I imagine that was significant depletion, but I wasn't yes. into nutrition at that point. And so I wasn't really supporting, I was taking a very basic pregnancy vitamin, um, but never was that explained. It was only through later research when I requalified that I started to understand that there was this, you know, because actually what happens is, is your doctor will prescribe medication, right, for postpartum and cognitive behavioral therapy and what I found with me was then when after my third child it was so bad and I was at the priory under psychiatric care we were just getting on stronger and stronger medication in the form of things you know bipolar meds and things yeah. which is a shame because I wish there was more awareness around this right so that women could understand absolutely and it's such a disservice um obviously gps have very little nutritional training um it was estimated in the region of just two hours so their model is obviously um the prescription pad it's the medicating of symptoms um so when you go to your gp for example feeling you know tearful or, or low mood they're often likely to read you you know, a, a series of checklist sort of symptom questions. Um, and then if you go above a, a particular threshold, you're likely to be prescribed a, a you know, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, SSRI, or some form of antidepressant, and it'll be, you know, see you in three to six months sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, however, your GP is very unlikely to say, you know, what do you eat? What's your diet like? Or they're very unlikely to send you off to a nutritionist or a dietitian to test for specific nutrients which govern neurotransmitter function. You know, they're very unlikely to test your iron, iodine, selenium, magnesium, your zinc levels, your omega-3 levels. Um, so that whole part of um, potential therapeutic intervention is just gone. Mm. And um, there's a, an amazing lady that I met called Melanie Lawson, who, for the reason that we're discussing, you know, she ended up with postpartum depression, very similar story to what you're saying. She started doing her own research, as many of us do. We become better investigators than the FBI because we're like, no, I want to find out. There's, there yeah. must be more going on. And um, she, you know, stumbled across the whole Omega-3 story, started taking Omega-3, started feeling better and then now she set up this amazing company called bear biology um which is you know I, you get that's it exactly who i take and actually oh, she reached out to me on instagram isn't that funny and i take oh, bear biology and recommend oh my, my god i didn't know that was yeah. the background and do you know that's her story her, how funny yeah i believe she's originally 
from Brighton and I was taking my son when he was first diagnosed on the autism spectrum down to yeah. Brighton to see an ed psych there. And I came across in a health food shop when bare biology was in its infancy and that yeah. was super pure and started taking it myself. And it was that was an integral part of my recovery, interestingly, yeah. without knowing. But what surprises me, Rachel, is that is you say nobody says anything, right? So initially it was like, okay, I was under GP care for the first two times. Then the third time it hits so badly, my gynecologist and obstetrician is saying to me, oh, but it's just hormones, isn't it? It must be, you've never been depressed in your life before, which is one theory. But then my psychiatrist was saying to me after my uh, youngest was two, I don't believe you've ever had postnatal depression. There's no difference between postnatal or depression. Depression's all the same to me and prescribed bipolar medication and basically told wow. me I'd be on it for life. And it, wow. it took me a lot. Don't get me wrong. It then took a huge recovery. So she's now yes. nine and I've been medication free for two years. And it was a Brilliant. big like mental, physical and spiritual um, process to get off. But why, why is this not covered more? Like, I feel that's such a shame, more awareness for women to really yeah. understand. Yeah, because it's not fair that you're given this kind of label and it's so, so common. Um, so you're giving this mental health diagnosis, but actually it could be to do with your brain's biochemistry. And having babies within very close timeframes is going to mean that your brain just doesn't catch up on replenishing those omega-3 fats, you know, there is some research suggesting it can take several years after the birth of one child. So imagine having, you know, several children successively, what that is going to do. I mean, your brain is an organ like the heart, you know, and there are specific nutrients required to fuel the brain and to keep it working optimally. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, right at the beginning, nutrition, neck down you know people are completely overlooking the fact that nutrients you know govern a lot of the inner workings of the human brain and we need much better attention um and there's so much more as well there's also gut health you know which i don't want to go into too much but 80 plus percent of serotonin is made in the gut and then transported by the vagus nerve directly into the brain um so for example if, uh, so there's this bi-directional relationship, the same way there is between the heart and the brain. So if you have cardiovascular disease, you're 50% likely to have depression and vice versa because they're both vascular organs and they're linked and the gut is also linked to the brain. So the health of your gut is critical. And for a lot of people eating ultra processed foods or even foods that they don't know that they're intolerant or allergic to can upset um, the health of the gut microbiota and it can basically um, encourage the unhealthy the bad bacteria if you like to over colonize to take over um, you know mm. the the balance of good and bad is disrupted and that can cause all sorts of things including depression anxiety um, and other behavioral disturbances as well. And oftentimes in my work, you know, children with ADHD and autism, they are eating the white or the beige foods. So they, they tend to be very fussy eaters, very picky, obviously they don't want food touching. And then they, they just gravitate to like, you know, white rice, white potatoes, um, you know, white chicken nuggets, you know, that's what they want. And all of that habitually over time is, mm. is basically just feeding the bad and the unhealthy bacteria in the gut. So, you know, having lots of prebiotics, making sure that you're getting the dietary fiber, which feeds the healthy bacteria. And there's so much more. I mean, I've done an entire um, chapter on this in, in, do you mind if I show my book? Yeah, share your book, so, please. So I've got it in front yeah, of you. Yeah, it's brilliant, but. Yeah, so there's an entire chapter that addresses this gut health because it's it's critical for brain health. Uh, and that's uh, another relationship that is often overlooked by healthcare professionals. Um, a lot of the government advice is archaic, it's misleading, mm. the science is not there. You know, there are decades of research in um, 
the fields of nutritional psychiatry and nutritional neuroscience, which are emerging. But due to this kind of multidisciplinary approach now that science has adopted. Um, so, you know, for example, my research is, you know, I'm a neuropsychologist, but then I also was supervised by an amazing uh, scientist called Professor Michael Crawford, who's a biochemist. So I, I also did biochemistry. And then on top of that, I had the nutritional training. I'm a registered nutritionist. And then on top of that, I worked with um, other scientists who um, had genetic components. And then I also did the neuroimaging. So this multidisciplinary approach, which combines scientists from different strands of science, has really provided amazing insights into these complex relationships. So my take home message is we have to move beyond the prescription pad. You know, the way we look at mental health is so old fashioned. It's not just a one size fits all approach. There has to be many strands similar to the strands that I'm talking about that exist now in science, these collaborations. So the way I see it, it has to be kind of like an personalized, integrative, you know, approach that combines, for example, the nutritional aspect, you know, first deal with the food, you know, that's always, always my number one, look at the diet, If you change the diet, and you're not feeling better, which is unlikely, you know, then consider something else, but or adopt it holistically. So if you feel like you need medication, then combine it with nutrition, combine it with exercise, you know, combine it with mindfulness, meditation. If you need talking therapy, you know, weave that into your own personalized prescription. The prescription simply cannot just be an SSRI. And also the efficacy of SSRIs have been explored. And although they there's wide individual variability, there was some research by someone called um, Thomas Insel, who was the director, I think, at the National Institute of Mental Health over in America, at the NIH. And he pulled to, together a lot of the data from clinical trials to assess the effect size. The effect size is simply just the efficacy of a medicinal product, you know, or intervention. And he found that after 14 weeks, um, 31% of um, people prescribed an SSRI had gone into remission. But then he also found that around 30% of all patients taking a placebo had also go, gone into remission. So that was like a, a one to 2% difference in terms of a placebo and an SSRI. I'm not saying that's the case in all cases. Of course, it isn't. You know, there are you know, stronger effect sizes in, in different uh, data pools. But th these were his findings. And these, these are important to acknowledge. You know, there was um, a study published by Dr. Brian Hallahan and colleagues that also is like a systematic review, pooling all the data together and comparing effect sizes um, in terms of depression. So they looked at cognitive behavior therapy, they looked at antidepressants, and they looked at omega-3 EPA rich formulations and they found an effect size of I think it was 0 0.61 um, so 61% uh, of, of patients taking omega-3 EPA um, had significantly reduced symptoms of clinical depression they compared that to SSRIs which I believe was around 0.31 which we've discussed earlier around 31 percent of patients improved taking SSRIs and then they looked at cognitive behavior therapy which is about 0.20 or something like that you can look up this paper it's 2015 British Journal of Psychiatry Hallahan and colleagues so 21% or 20% of patients having CBT uh, improved. So that to me was amazing because omega-3, which is a natural substance, had a greater effect size than not only antidepressants, but also CBT. And in fact, both of them combined. Yet a lot of people don't know about the therapeutic or potentially mediating therapeutic effect of omega-3 or things like vitamin D. You know, there was a review by Simon Spedding, I think that was 2014 or 2015 as well, 
that, you know, looked at all the data for depression and found that those taking vitamin D had a moderately favorable antidepressant effect. But like I said, when you go to your GP, they're not saying, let's look at your vitamin D, let's look at your omega-3. They're, they're more likely to say, what a load of pseudoscience. Mm. You know, because I've, yeah. I've, chall- I've challenged my GP in the past about, you know, these types of questions, because I think it's good, not because I'm trying to be arrogant or trying to, you know, embarrass her. No, not at all. It's important to, like, pass on um, this information, you know, I studied for 14 years and I just feel it would be such a disservice not to share my knowledge. What would be the point of me spending and devoting my life, you know, to that academic pursuit if I can't pass it on and make it translation, translational, you know, so people can understand it as well and try and break it down um, for, for everyone to benefit from. I think it's so important. I, I, I want to talk to you actually about the therapeutic dose level and the testing in just a moment. But I just thought relevant to what you were saying there that I would share is when you talk in the book, like I have it open here on page 122 and you talk about the different minerals and vitamins, right? So we need magnesium, iodine, vitamin A, C, E, carotene, B1, B2, B6, B12, folic acid. They're not testing for any of this. What was really interesting for us was I was um, buying more for experimentation with liver detoxification and optimizing hormonal health was a protein shake by Biotics Research, which um, called um, NutriClear, which had lots and lots of vitamins, MCT oil and um, uh, pea-based protein. And I was looking for how can I get, because children like with ASD or ADHD are such fussy eaters, how can we actually improve my son's breakfast? And would he have some of this shake? And what we noticed is then he then craved that shake every single morning and he wanted it for breakfast. And he was getting all these vitamins and suddenly his he was doing things faster. So it used to take him ages to get showered, to get downstairs. Suddenly he was speeding up because he was getting, a, we have a good diet. And I know you talk about the importance of the background diet in your book. So that's not to take away because that's so, so important that we, we get it from food first. But when he was supplemented this, everything improved. And then it's gone out of stock. You can't get it anywhere in the UK at the moment. And what we saw was his anxiety begin to creep in. And so I, I then found a multivitamin that was formulated very similarly to this. And sure enough, as we supplement him with a healthy diet, his symptoms start to ease and I just want to share this with more and more people because it's just what a difference right because when we were told six months ago you need to get him an SSRI to manage his anxiety and the OCD that was developing that filled me with fear because my instinct was he's so young his brain's still developing Um, there are some studies aren't there that show an increased risk of suicidal thoughts in teenagers that do take an SSRI and I think that if we could do more testing and use nutrition as first line defense or protocol for treatment and then if it's really necessary to put medication on top then I'm not anti-medication but especially in young children Mm. I think that's really important you know when you have a six-year-old often ADHD is you know goes hand in hand with psychostimulant medications when people think of ADHD they think of Ritalin you know and and that's a shame Mm. Um, especially in America children are prescribed psychostimulant medication as, as young as four five six upwards so at that age my advice is deal with the diet first you know that's really really critical uh, and not just to leap onto the prescription pad you know much mm, very much so and in terms of the dose with omega-3 you were talking about the importance of like finger prick testing getting yeah. that ratio between omega-6 and 3 Uh, done properly because obviously it can be more pro-inflammatory what would you say to people that are listening there and are thinking about testing and and how much they should be supplementing with um, in addition to a good diet so the balance of omega-3 and 6 is critical so the brain also has omega-3 sorry omega-6 fatty acids polyunsaturated fatty acids Um, and you know they're important in the sense that the head of the omega-6 family is linoleic acid and that converts via a desaturation and elongation process into a rachidonic acid. Now, when we have a wound, so we injure ourselves, we have inflammation. Inflammation is created in the body and that alerts us. It's almost like a signal. Hey, you have this wound, you know, you need to tend to it for it to get better. And then, of course, the inflammation dies down and goes away when the wound is healed. 
However, people following a Western type diet um, or what we call the SAD diet, the standard American diet, which is full of junk, ultra processed foods, you know, pastries, um, baked goods, you know, anything that's been highly processed, they contain omega-6 linoleic acid, um, normally via the inclusion of soybean oil, which is present in practically every commercial um, processed manufactured supermarket food. So linoleic acid via soybean oil, the excessive consumption of this can trigger those inflammatory markers such as prostanoids and leukotrienes, which can place your brain in a vulnerable state of inflammation. Now, those inflammatory markers over time, when they're switched on and you have inflammation in the body and the brain, can increase risk for a wide range of not only psychiatric disease, the label, but also uh, the premature development of metabolic disease. So again, you know, that can impact things like cardiovascular disease, risk of stroke, risk of development of type 2 diabetes, risk of obesity. So what we want to do is have a nice balance because omega-6s are pro-inflammatory, omega-3s are anti-inflammatory. If we look back, like, from a, a, the sort of diet our ancestors would be eating like a paleolithic diet the balance of omega-6 and omega-3 was estimated to be one to one now it's in the region of 20 to one of omega-6s versus omega-3s so if you have too much omega-6 in your diet because they compete for absorption and desaturation the omega-3 the little omega-3 even if you're just taking a one gram fish oil supplement a day will not be absorbed it won't be synthesized into your red blood cells. It will be the omega-6. That will be the predominant um, polyunsaturated fatty acid that is getting absorbed. And there's this general consensus among those working in the field of nutritional psychiatry that underlying all poor brain health or mental health is inflammation. So we want to make sure that we are elevating our omega-3s and decreasing our intake of omega-6s. and you can test for how much omega-3 and 6 is in your blood, uh, which is a good indicator of, of, of brain status as well. Um, you can, I mean, I send my clients off to a laboratory in W1 for a full nutritional screening that looks at all the nutrients that govern neurotransmitter function, um, as well as, you know, serotonin and dopamine. But you can do a simple home test. I... Um, recommend omega-3 quant they can send the kit to your home um, it's based on um, valid scientific research and there's this scale so between zero to four is suboptimal between four to eight is intermediate and between eight to twelve which is where we should all be is optimal low omega-3 is uh, associated with poor psych psychiatric health you know even um the adults of ADHD in my neuroimaging clinical trial over in America had an omega-3 index of, I think it was like 4.1 or 4.2%. The work of Dr. Alex Richardson from the University of Oxford has um, demonstrated a mean omega-3 index. And mean, of course, just means average in UK school children of 2.4, which is, wow. yeah, suboptimal wow. again. And, and that's frightening because the children aren't is, eating yeah. fish, fish and seafood. And I'm always asked about supplements, you know, which omega-3, which omega-3. So you shouldn't be purchasing um, a fish oil supplement that contains omega-6. As I said, we're already consuming way too much of that. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what the scientific rationale is behind brands that include omega-6 or omega-9. We don't need omega-9. Our body can make it. What we do need is the two key highly unsaturated fatty acids, eicosapentaenoic acid and docosahexaenoic acid, EPA, DHA, look for those on the label. And, you know, the other thing I would mention is if when you eat a piece of fish, you not only get the omega-3s, but you get all the trace elements you need for absorption synthesis. So you get the zinc, you get the iodine, you get the selenium, you get the magnesium in a, in a, a nice piece of fish, like wild Alaskan salmon or whatever. But taking just 
an omega-3 fish oil is not going to give you the multivitamins that you need to optimize absorption. So you should be taking your omega-3s with a multivitamin. I always say diet first. If you can, mm. but I understand that our children who are neurodivergent, you know, have ADHD or ASD, whatever it is, it's really hard to sometimes get them to eat the right foods. So if your child is not eating the right foods, then yes, you should supplement. You know, a lot of people don't like to promote supplements, but if you're not getting the nutrients your brain needs to, to function on a daily basis, then of course you should supplement and, you know, find clever and inventive ways. Like you said, get a Nutribullet juice, you know, 60 to 40% vegetable to fruit ratio, add in whatever you can, you know, and, and, you know, make it taste nice, like blueberries, you know, full of polyphenols, antioxidants, hate mitigate, they help mitigate oxidative stress. You know, there are so many things you can do, but as I said, like this, this book, like has the science, it has the recipes, it, it, it helps parents, you know, it talks about these inventive ways, what you can do to get your child to to um, eat smart. Yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant, but which I will um, link to in the show notes. Um, I guess one last question before you go that I have in my mind. Yeah. Obviously, we've both had children that have different um, neurological difficulties. Is do you think these children are burning through these vitamins and minerals faster? because of what they're trying to control with their brain or their perceptions of things than a child that is neurotypical? Do you think, I guess, do they need more support than the average child? That's a really good question. And in fact, if I rewind, you know, when my son was nine years of age and I first started him on Omega-3, um, you know, he was taking it, we, we followed the instructions on the box, you know, and he was taking six tablets a day and and then at six weeks, um, there were no differences at all. And I was like, what's going on? And then I found out there was this body of research in America showing uh, lower levels of omega-3. And in particular in boys, for some reason, there seems to be this um, difference, this gender difference in terms of absorption. Um, so boys in particular had had lower levels and then in that case what I was trying to do was to correct a nutritional insufficiency and that would take potentially longer it takes about six weeks to physiologically alter the red blood cell composition um, so six weeks um, all I probably did was correct the insufficiency, but I wasn't building on top of that. Mm. Um, so then we increased the dose and, you know, continued. And after around 12 weeks, he said to me, mom, you know, I feel happy. And that was amazing. And, amazing. and now I know, now I know the science that's because his serotonin yeah. started working properly, but he actually said, mom, I feel happy. And like you said earlier, like my son would crave the supplements. He couldn't go a day about them. It got to the point where he was just literally taking them himself habitually. Mm. That was, you know, how we managed to make the changes. Um, and he was also noticeably less hyperactive. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, now we have, you know, a, a whole bunch of clinical trial data showing a small to modest effect size in uh, reducing clinical symptoms of ADHD compared to a placebo. We have clinical trial re research showing increases in spelling uh, and, you know, literacy and spelling gains, also increases in sleep um, as well. And yeah, so I it's think amazing. the research is, is out there. Yeah, and I can validate it. The more we followed what you said, the better results we've been getting with a, with a slightly different, obviously, um, neurological condition. But um, yeah. it's all the same as far as I can see in terms of supporting that developing brain. Um, and I just think it's amazing. So where can people find you, Dr. Rachel? Um, I know you're pretty active on social media. You have a couple of websites. You've got this awesome book here, Smart Foods. Go and buy it. Um, I definitely highly recommend it. Please link to everything and we'll put it in the show notes as well. Yeah, um, I, I'm my main, I'm kind of active a lot on Instagram. So if anyone's interested in my work, they can go over to nutritious underscore minds. I also have several websites, which I know you'll probably share um, when you post this with everyone. But 
yeah, nutritious underscore mind is probably the main the main method of contact. Brilliant. And the book is easily available on Amazon, I think, which is yeah. where I got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, very easy to get a hold of. And it's a brilliant book. Thank you so much for coming and sharing My your pleasure. time. You're so generous. Yeah, so generous with your research. Yeah, I really enjoyed time. it. Thank, Thank you. you. It's so lovely chatting with you. Take care. Bye-bye. And you. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. As always, all of the show notes will be over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcasts. Um, You can also find the transcript to download there as well. And I look forward to catching up with you again next week. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.